I'm very excited to announce the launch of the Michigan Ross Executive Perspectives podcast series. We live in a time of unprecedented change, regionally and globally. While the pandemic has been a major catalyst of that change, the Middle East region has been evolving towards a future that we are shaping with technology and ambition. We aim to bring you insights and visions from Michigan Ross faculty members, inspirational readers from the region and beyond, to cover these very same topics that are shaping our future. With us today are Lindy Greer, Associate Professor of Management and Organizations, Sanjeev Kumar, Lecturer of Technology and Operations, and Amyatosh Punanadam, Professor of Finance from the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. So uh, first to introduce myself, I'm Jay Raj. I'm the Head of Operations for the Ross Executive Education in the Middle East and Africa. And I wanted to welcome our Michigan Ross faculty with us who joined with different practices from different areas and different backgrounds. So we will have an amazing diversity to ask and uh, to get a lot of information and direction on how to proceed with 2021. So I would like to ask you first to introduce yourselves, your field, your expertise, the research, the interesting research you're working on. And then after that, we can get started. Uh, Lindy? Thank you for having us here today. I'm excited for the chance for the dialogue. Um, I'm an associate professor of management organizations as well as the faculty director of the Sainer Leadership Center. My research looks at leading high-performance teams more generally and with specific interests in diversity, equity, and inclusion, conflict management, and power dynamics. Excellent. uh, I'm Yatosh. Thanks for having me, Jay. It's a pleasure to be here. I am a professor of finance and also right now the chair of finance area. My research is broadly about corporate finance and banking. And these days I'm researching two themes. One is about detecting risk in a business and mostly in banks. And the second theme is more about the role of racial inequality in financial markets and financial services. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. This is amazing. Uh, Sanjeev? Hi. Thanks, Jay, for having me. I'm, I'm really glad to be here. I'm Sanjeev Kumar. I'm a faculty in the technology and operations area. Much of my work is around uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence and essentially the idea of how do we extract value from machine learning, artificial intelligence, and similar technologies. How do we actually implement them in a way that suits the organization's purposes and get value for our investment dollars in, in artificial intelligence? This is great. So we do have one research uh, area in common. I'm doing similar research in terms of the interaction of uh, the general purpose technology like artificial intelligence and the human side of the organization. So really looking forward to that conversation with you guys. I'm going to start with a generic question, which has been asked quite a few times. But from the perspective that each one of you have their own experiences, I'm sure you can give us an in-depth interaction on what it means to uh, when it comes to that question, which is, how did the COVID-19 pandemic affect the economy and businesses around you, whether it's positive or negative? And what do you think are the toughest lessons learned? We have seen companies skyrocket. We have seen companies fail. So what really sets those two apart? Maybe we can start, Lindy, because on, on the leadership organizational side, it's quite impactful. Yeah, you already guessed my answer, which would be the intentionality around the people side of business. With the pandemic, it's introduced both challenges around crisis and crisis management, as well as challenges around remote work. 
success in both of those dimensions comes back to the quality of leadership in a company. And the quality of leadership then goes back to how intentional that leader is about the people dynamics within their company. That remote work is definitely a challenge that can be overcome and even be made to be an advantage when companies are very intentional about taking the people side of work into account when they work remotely. So how can you get very intentional about building culture in an online environment, opportunity for connection, scaffolding in performance outcomes, things like that. So I think companies that always work good at people stuff, you know, rose to the challenge are doing even better now and companies that perhaps neglected that area had bigger challenges. Okay, so can you give us uh, an example, for example, of a company that has implemented certain uh, applications of organizational theories, crisis management that have succeeded and maybe one that hasn't? So I'm going to give you examples within our university system. <laughs> okay, that's great. Yeah, so I think Ross, for example, has been very intentional internally about applying the theories that we know to how we interact, you know, whether it's Dean DeRue regularly being available as a leader to answer questions and talk with faculty, even when there were a lot of tough questions. He really, in that sense, exemplified good crisis leadership that came back with folks and Quants just naming him the best MBA dean in the world recently. And so I thought that was a nice example of how him living up to good leadership principles led to good outcomes for our organization and recognition outside. Other hero stories I've heard across our university right now too um, include, I believe it was a dean over in the information school who was sent weekly emails that were very human during COVID that would describe the time with his family at home and was a way to sort of build connection with the workforce during the crisis. So those are two examples of successes. If you look outside, you know, I think more broadly, a lot of the big tech companies, especially Silicon Valley companies have in the last five to 10 years, it's been, been a big change in the Valley of more interest in the people side of work. And so I don't think it's a shocker in a sense that if you coincide, you know, the rise of remote work, it allows technology companies, especially the ones that are good at the people side to do better, whether you're looking at something like Zoom, um, Alphabet, et cetera. Thanks. Thanks, Lindy. How do you really uh, evaluate the perspective of the impact of COVID-19 on corporations? That's a great question, Jay, that has been asked many times over. But, you know, fundamentally, when I look at it as a finance professor, the very definition of crisis has changed for us from a financial and economics perspective. Look, I mean, I'll go walk into a classroom and I'll teach crisis that will come from lack of demand or lack of supply. And we have all these theories, the demand-driven shock, supply-driven shock. And here is a crisis where you had both the demand and the supply early on. Consumers wanted to consume. And they were suppliers. They had all the capacity. They wanted to produce. They could not match. They could not connect together because of the healthcare risk. So fundamentally, what happened early on, our profession, my side of business, we started thinking about it very differently. So how do you solve a crisis that is not your garden variety recession? And then you saw U.S. economy contracting by 30% on an annual basis. And you had the similar number across the globe. Massive contraction in GDP and therefore employment rate across, across the board. So once you start looking at crisis from that perspective, then if you are the CEO of a company or CFO of a company, then you have to ask yourself this question. How do you manage a crisis that is neither about you producing more, nor about consumers consuming more? You have to get to them in a safe, safe manner. So where I'm going with that, the notion of risk, that there is one fundamental thing that we always teach in finance is that, look, there are all sorts of risk, interest rate risk, commodity price risk, exchange rate risk. And then there is one risk that happens with a very small probability with huge impact. And that typically is kind of a theoretical construct. People will give it all sorts of different names. 
This time that crisis came home uh, and we had to deal with that. And that unexpected large negative shock, the question for, from a corporate finance perspective is, so how do you deal with that? And there are no risk management, no hedging tool to hedge against the risk of pandemic. So there, in fact, it's one of those things where leadership does become important. That is, you could not have done much as an individual company to take care of the crisis. So what could have you done or what could you have been doing for the crisis? And there are examples of many companies who were sitting on good cash balance. In fact, uh, we, all, uh, we often say that cash is the ultimate form of hedging compared to any derivative contract, any hedging contract. And you had companies like Apple that went in with a lot of cash, hundreds of billions of dollars. And of course, the tech companies did well in any case, but from the financial side, that will be a success story. Of course, it's a hindsight that Apple had uh, hundreds of billions of dollars of cash, but it made them ride this crisis pretty nicely. To your second question, which companies took advantage of that or saw opportunities in this kind of weird matching problem? Fintech companies come to mind and uh, at the intersection of tech and finance. And just a little bit of a background to set this stage. If you look at traditional banks, the area that I work in, it's very costly. In fact, there's research showing that in the last 100 years or more, the cost of doing banking is on average 2%. Another way of saying that every time you transact money through the banking sector, 2% is lost in commission. And that's very high. And it has remained 2% from 1950s to 60s to 70s to today, even though there has been huge technological breakthrough. So there comes, you have a role for fintech. And because fintech can cut down this cost in a speedy way, in a more efficient way. And when COVID happened and we, we had this matching problem, you wanted contactless, contactless payments. People were not visiting PNC's bank branch or JP Morgan Chase's bank branch. So a success story that comes to mind is Square. Square Capital has done phenomenally well in terms of creating this, taking this opportunity. And then time permitting, I can go into the details. But what, what effectively I'm saying is that there have been companies that looked at this 2% cost and then took this crisis as an opportunity. And if you look at their performance in the last one year, of course, nobody has seen the future, but past one year was phenomenal for these fintech companies. So I'll stop there. No, this is excellent because actually Square is a very uh, good example of success. And in, in a way, they're starting to diversify their services to adapt further to the changes in the economic environment. So, but uh, let me do a follow-up question. So in, in the case of companies that, are, that don't have the luxury of having the cash as the ultimate hedging tool, we are seeing SMEs getting hit the hardest. So how do you see SMEs being able to recover and what kind of uh, steps they can take to mitigate that risk, similar to what FinTech has done in a way? So Jim, as a background to just expanding on the question that you're asking, uh, this has also been a story of uneven recovery. I mean, the large companies have done phenomenally well in the last one year. Because what happened, the Fed and the Treasury in the US and the central banks around the world, they, this time after this crisis, they had unprecedented injection of liquidity in the system. Our Fed's balance sheet, in fact, grew by trillions of dollars in a matter of weeks. And all that money that was pumped in, effectively, the first order beneficiaries were large companies. And it creates all sort of, of course, it helps. First of all, let me just say that it helped restore the stability of the economic system. But at the same time, it created unevenness in competitiveness of large companies and small companies. And that's what you're asking. So what do SMEs, where do they find themselves? 
So there were some government programs like PPP and where there was some, at least in the US, some support was given to these small companies, but that was not enough. In fact, companies like Esquire also, the reason they did that well, because they could reach these small consumers all over the US, right? Because they had that reach through tech, they could reach places that were otherwise impossible to get to. So the question is, so right now, if you're a small business, what do you do, right? You are in a survival mode, pretty much. You're in a survival mode. You're hoping for vaccine to come in and then hopefully recover and get back to the normal course of business. Within SMEs, again, there's a lot of heterogeneity. One sector that I study very keenly is the real estate sector. And if you look at the malls, if you look at the hotels, if you look at restaurants, of course, they have been decimated. And at that stage, all you need to do is survive. So at this stage, if you are an SME that is in a sector that depends on contact-based business, then you just have to survive. But then there are many other small companies in this non-contact kind of business, non-real estate hotels and restaurant kind of business, where... Uh, from the financial management perspective, you have to do two or three key things right now. One is, this is an ideal time to cut expenses that are not needed. And it's easy for me to say, but there is a lot of fat out there uh, for a lot of businesses. A lot of businesses must wake up and realize, look at their accounting and finance and control system and see that where are we wasting money? So that's hopefully is not that hard. That's something that can be done. Second, the, the lot of small businesses are not aware right now that they're aware or they may not have access that the cost of money has come down by a lot. So this, if possible, uh, this is a good time to borrow, if possible. Of course, for that, you may not have cash, but do you have borrowing capacity? That's the key question. And the third thing I would say is that, again, uh, these are all hard solutions, nothing is easy. But the third thing is, this is, again, the time to put in equity in the business. Look, if you're a publicly traded company and if your stock price is hammered, that's a good time to buy a stock. If you're a small SME, right now the business is really hurting. The marginal value that you'll get from an, a dollar of equity capital injection is going to be pretty high. So to sum up, I have three recommendations. Cut costs. If you can borrow, borrow. If you have money, put in equity. Last two are essentially about raise funds. Okay, uh, great insight, Amitosh. And I think uh, that this is going to be a topic that we'll probably dig in in more details in future podcasts because it impacts directly what contributes to 70% of the corporate economy. So, Sanjeev, I'll turn to the third element of our podcast, which is the technology part. Going back to Square, which is, uh, I wish I got in when it was a third of what it was today. But we have seen the stock market didn't really pick up on the technology stocks just because it was a bubble, but because there was an actual uh, flurry of development of advanced technologies that hit the market at the right time at the right spot. So from your perspective, what do you think enabled technology within the COVID pandemic uh, context? Uh, Jay, from from technology point of view, the biggest learning that has come out here is the value of flexibility. If you think of a, you know, Zoom is the company everybody talks about. If you see the amount of scaling up that Zoom had to do, you know, in a matter of days. And I remember last winter when we moved to an online teaching environment on Zoom, and Zoom has this feature called cloud recording, and they 
suddenly their volume was 10 times up. Their cloud recording was taking weeks to happen. And then in a matter of few days, they scaled their infrastructure up to an extent that now it, at this moment, it's it's near simultaneous. In a couple of hours, you get your record. To, to ability to scale up your operation at that level, at that short a time, that amount of flexibility to be able to accommodate anything that's unprecedented, unforeseen. That's what technology brings to the table right now. That's not an easy capability to build, but our current suite of technologies, if you think of cloud computing, if you think of things like AWS, where you can host and scale, where you don't have to do a lot of capital investment upfront, you can pay as you go and build and scale. That ability is absolutely crucial. And Going back to a discussion we were having about SME, if you, if you think of Zoom and think of its competitors, your Microsoft Teams and your Google Meet and your Skype, Zoom was clearly a late to this market compared to its competitor. It has less financial resources. It was less well-known, but still it came out as the option that took the largest share of the, of the exploding market. And... Again, that tells you that technology gives you ability to compete even if you are not the largest player in the market. However, this flexibility, in, in some ways, easier for newer and smaller companies to build because they don't have the legacy systems to work for and legacy systems to change and, and do that change management process. As we go through this adjustment process to the shock to our system through COVID, uh, large legacy systems, uh, legacy companies need to really ask how they are going to update and change and redesign their technology architecture so that they are able to successfully scale and transition to meet new challenges. Uh, so that's number one from the flexibility side. From, from the design of artificial intelligence side that I, I work in, one of the things that human beings excel at compared to uh, compared to machines is that human beings are wonderful in responding to unstructured, unprecedented, unanticipated situations. You know, machines are great, but machines, machines can make decisions if everything is well laid out and everything is according to plan and everything is following in its needs by need bucket. Once it goes out of, out of that, human beings do better than machines. And we are in an era right now where we are transitioning a lot of managerial decision-making from human beings to machines. And as we are doing that, this current episode shows us the challenge of building artificial intelligence systems that are capable of handling these contingencies. You know, most of our AI system right now are what's called VKI, which is essentially AI built for a particular specific task that it's really good at doing, but that's all it does, it's specific task. And we haven't really thought that much about how it will respond to shocks of this nature, because we have designed it to do a very specific thing in a very specific context. As, as this particular crisis shows us that we need to be broader in our thinking, we need to give our AIs ability to handle contingencies other than just what it's designed for. So it's from one side, I see opportunity that we can scale up and be flexible through technology. And I see challenge that our AIs need to be much better designed to handle this kind of unprecedented situation. Okay, so what you're saying is that digital transformation accelerated during the pandemic. However, it raised a lot of challenges in terms of both sides keeping up with each other. So technology has its challenges and adoption has its challenges. So do you see as we move forward, 
that uh, the challenges can be resolved and do you see that adoption can spread where digital transformation is not, not just limited to those who have the cash or the organization capabilities to do it but can actually become more prevalent once those challenges are resolved absolutely you know you know amitosh was uh, talking about the cost of banking that hasn't changed in so many decades if you think of a cost of setting up a technology infrastructure and getting your business up and running and ability to deliver to customer for the longest period of time that capital investment needed to go be up and running was a big barrier for somebody to scale up but now in our current technology stack that has come down significantly so that that opens up the competition it, it gives anybody in any part of the world uh, no matter the scale the ability to compete and scale up so so that's great from that point of view from a digital if you think of digital transformation as a tool that allows you to be competitive however what has also happened is that we have we already had high rate of change in our in our technology space if you think of you know iphones or smartphones are just about what 12 years old you know in 12 year we have essentially completely changed how we live and work and interact with each other pace of change was already pretty high but we have taken that high pace of change in last year and a half we have taken it up to stratosphere right whatever would have happened in less next 10 year that change has been compressed into one year there has been a lot of suffering out there that i don't want to minimize but from a technology person point of view this is very exciting what we are seeing right now is essentially globalization of technology labor that you can have anybody work for you from any part of the world as long as they have access to the right technology now globalization is not new folks having you know software development center in india is not new uh, we have always relied on labor from everywhere but there was a lot of friction in that process it took it took a lot of money and effort to actually have a globalized workforce what we are seeing right now is that that process has essentially become a lot smoother cultural barrier to having a globalized connected distributed workforce have fallen away and that i think is going to be for future of business future of technology future of humanity that's going to be something that's going to be very very valuable uh, and will produce um, you know benefits for everybody so that that i'm i'm super excited about thank you this is a good segue for the next uh, section of the podcast Uh, which is the future of corporations the future of humans humanity our social life our interaction so lindy this is i mean it's a simple question but it's very complex to answer so what is the new normal how does the future look for us from a corporate or a human perspective or an organization perspective what's your views i think a lot of the words that just came up on this previous part of the conversation are true in terms of global and with that comes often remote as well as diverse And so in parallel to a lot of what's been happening with the global pandemic we've also seen a lot of change in the world around diversity equity and inclusion and demand for companies to pay more attention to diversity equity and inclusion additionally as we do start to have more of a global workforce and global companies truly global companies it will require working through diversity and so i think the human nature is going to have to evolve to be more comfortable with difference as well as more comfortable with change and adaptation and finding ways to work with people that come from different backgrounds different cultures different ways of working from yourself and if you look at what this means for companies then you know there's a, a bigger onus than ever for companies to get really good in terms of embracing diversity equity and inclusion and the tools companies need to have a truly diverse workforce that works together effectively 
throughout all of this, as you're teaching new tools and the rate of change is so high, learning and development in companies is going to be more important than ever. And it's also some, a role in which schools like Ross can play a part too, is how do we give you know, people the skills they need to work in diverse settings and in settings in which change is going to be accelerating, not slowing. You know, I think the advent of new technologies means that after the pandemic ends, I think the chain, pace of change is still going to keep going at this rate because we've discovered that we can as companies and that we are able to be nimble and agile. And so how can companies then create more agile structures, ways of working and learning development programs or partnerships with places like Ross to ensure that companies are developing agile employees? I'll stop there, but there's a lot. It'll be a very interesting period in the next five years to see the permanent changes from what we just went through. Yeah, I mean, this is the silver lining that we see in terms of the evolution and the acceleration of, let's say, the technology integration side, diversity, inclusion, the acceleration of the learning part. So all of these are great things happening in the middle of the tragedies. But when the dust settles, I agree with you, it would be great to just be part of that change and see how it happens. Then from a banking perspective, from your view, Uh, How do you see legacy banking? Because that was a follow-up question I wanted to ask you from the previous one. So how do you see the legacy banking catching up, competing, integrating with fintech? How do you see the two interact with each other in the future? Uh, One thing is obvious that, and Sanjeev was talking about that, look, the cost of getting into finance is not that high now. So that 2% uh, was a very cushy uh, business model that bankers have had for a very long period of time. That So the first thing is to realize that that's no longer going to be the new normal. The entry barrier has come down and what has happened because of the pandemic, it has accelerated and again, uh, stressing the point that Sanjeev made, that it has stressed, it has accelerated the rate of change. So the question is, so how do you deal with that if you are a large, big, old bank? And my um, uh, thinking here is that collaboration is the name of the game here, that large banks do have some fundamental advantages that fintechs will take years to get to. And the obvious ones are huge branch network, huge customer relationship, and a lot of information that they're sitting on. They need to learn to make good use of that information. Right? If I think about our own lives, the kind of banking transactions we have done and the kind of information my banker knows about me every time I go for a credit card or I go for a mortgage or they just look at my salary is top. The question is, how do they use that information? And there, the collaboration with fintech companies, I expect to see a lot of mergers and acquisition in this space where large banks acquiring small startups. And I also see a whole lot of, and that's happening, a whole lot of small companies or small startups that are sponsored by large banks to get them to do their payments better, to get them to do their credits better, to get them to do their information processing better, things like FICO score that banks used to rely on. It's outdated. It's been going on. I mean, there's some logistic regression model with feeding in 100 data points, and there comes a score. Now we can do it real time much quicker, again, at a lower cost. So so to answer your question more directly, I, I see a lot of collaboration, a lot of investment by large banks in these new tech. And the bottom line has to be that that 2% has to go down. Uh, by a lot. Because what I'm seeing, every fintech company is saying that 2% on trillions of dollars, it's a market ripe for disruption. And so either you become part of it or you'll be extinct uh, pretty soon as a large bank. Yeah, I mean, the disruption already started. Let's see how it uh, propagates over the next Absolutely. couple of years. It'll be very interesting to see. 
So just uh, to wrap up with uh, Sanjeev, then uh, we talked about the technologies and its interaction and its challenges. So what do you see as the, do you see as one major technology emerging as the one that's going to define what digital transformation looks like or what the new change in post-pandemic era? So, you know, I'll take Amir Tosha's 2% banking margin and I'll raise the fact that IT, IT spend in an average company is about 7% of revenue right? Five to seven percent. That's a lot of money that Mm. we put towards our technology. But if you if you look at this, uh, you know, how that money is actually used, allocated, distributed, 80 percent of that money is used just to keep the lights on, just to keep a company running. You know, five to seven percent of revenue that we are spending on IT, much of that is not used for innovation. Much of that is not used for building capability. It's used for just making sure that when you go to a bank, uh, the bank is actually operating, the ATM actually gives you cash out. You know, that's, that has to change. Technology is an enabler. It's an enabler for doing bigger and better things. Using it just to, just to keep the lights on is not, that really shows that we are not big enough, broad enough in our vision as to what we can achieve with technology. Now, again, the discussion really more here is about large legacy companies because they are the ones who are lagging right now in in this race to build flexible innovation and capability that can react to such shocks. And I think opportunity that we have here is to write this crisis and make those fundamental changes in how we look at technology, how we look at technology dollars, how we implement and how we build capability. So that's one one thing that I see is is a clear thing that we need to work on. The other part that we are, you know, we, we have been talking about this idea of remote work and the idea that companies will now get distributed with, with a large, diverse, distributed workforce. And if you think of Silicon Valley as the place where we build all our big software in past some time, if you think of Toronto where much of AI work is going on or places which are uh, which are startup hubs, they are great, but they also introduce a lot of cost for somebody who is not in that particular geographical situation or that particular hub, right? We have an opportunity now to take that same ecosystem and make that global and bring that friction and cost of getting into that geographical cluster down. So that that I see as a significant opportunity for a technology industry and infrastructure as a whole. And for legacy companies, that's the ability to restructure their technology stack and get that flexibility in is going to be quite significant. And what that will need is for us to for us as in the leadership of companies to be broad and be open and build technology capabilities that are not just for meeting the needs of today, but which are open to handling the demands of tomorrow. And we don't know what tomorrow will bring. You know, as we are saying, rate rate of change has really accelerated. We do not know how the business environment is going to look like five years from now. We need to build capabilities which are open and flexible to handle whatever that may come in. And that will require change in how we are thinking about our vision for technology for our companies and how we are allocating our dollars. I think that very much wraps up for this session. Sanjeev, Amitosh, Lindy, I, I really appreciate the time you've taken. I really appreciate the insights you have provided. And I do look forward to hosting you back on specific topics in, in, in the next 12 months. Looking forward to it. 
please stay tuned to the next session of our pilot podcast episode. You can also follow the Michigan Ross Executive Education Middle East LinkedIn page to stay up to date about news and other podcast episodes.